Welcome to the Middle Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You got Logan Jones here. And this week, we wanted to rebroadcast one of our interviews with Sarah Sanders, who is the co founder of a company called Native. So, Native is in the ag tech space, and they are providing transparency using technology to allow consumers and producers to have more transparency into the agricultural supply chains. So we wanted to rebroadcast this one, one, because obviously the ag tech space is blowing up in Kentucky right now with companies like App Harvest, and two, because Sarah and her team have recently just closed a round of funding for $1.75 million from names like Blue Apron, the Kellogg Company, uh, USDA, and more. So we just wanted to re-highlight them again and put them back in the spotlight We really think that you guys will get a lot out of this episode and what Native is trying to do. Um, Before we dive in, we just want to get a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Land Betterment. Land Betterment is doing some incredible work throughout Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky as they are taking abandoned strip mines and putting sustainable businesses in their place. These businesses not only provide a useful repurposing of the land, but they also provide great jobs to replace the mining jobs that were lost when the mine was shut down. To learn more about Land Betterment, you can listen to our interview with their founders, Mark Jensen and Kirk Taylor, on episode 97, or visit their website at landbetterment.com. We're also sponsored by Airwing Ventures. Airwing helps determined entrepreneurs seeking resources to grow with capital and connections in order to build successful companies and impactful legacies. They're all about high-growth companies, high-growth careers, and high-growth communities. I've personally known Dan Beldy for about four years now, and I've seen the work he's been doing in the community, and we should all feel very blessed and grateful that a VC like himself is here in Kentucky. I encourage you to connect with Airwing and learn more. Let's all grow this state together. You can reach out to Dan at info at airwing.vc or dan at airwing.vc, and their website is www.airwing.vc. It's been good getting to know you, and we're looking forward to diving in even deeper here on the podcast and sharing, you know, your knowledge and your experience with uh, with the audience, with the community. Um, so before we get into anything with Native, let's jump into your background, kind okay. of where you're from, education, professional background up towards uh, when you started Native. So just take it wherever you want to go. Sure. Uh, born right here in Lexington, um, raised in Cincinnati, went to UK, um, grew up in the family restaurant business. So. My family's restaurant company was actually started in Kentucky um, God, 35-something years ago. I won't say the real number. My dad wouldn't be thrilled to hear it. Um, you know, 35, 40 years ago here, right, right here in Kentucky. So I grew up at the end of the food supply chain and um, spent my whole life around that. And that's the inspiration for, you know, the company I'll tell you more about here shortly. 
but studied uh, business management at UK. Uh, graduated in 2012, national championship year, which I'm pretty proud oh, of. Awesome. Although I hope somebody can find <laughs> can get fun. us another one here soon. Stop. Yep. It's only only matter of time. Yep. We're getting close. And I went to grad school. Um, did a very brief stint in grad school. Was able to do an MBA in just under a year at Xavier. They have a great international business program. Went to China for two weeks, Israel for two weeks, um, and that was a great experience. But really spent that time. Realized I didn't want to be in the family restaurant business necessarily, but technology and sustainability were really interesting to me. Took that time to reset, learn a little bit, figure out what what I wanted to do, and um, ultimately ended up now certainly at the intersection of, of both industries. So food has always been a part of my background and my inspiration, um, but but took the tech angle instead of the uh, restaurant route, I suppose. A lot so. better margins there. Uh, I hear the multiples are better. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Um, I know a story you told me before about your background that kind of influenced you mm-hmm. towards entrepreneurship that you told was uh, meeting Nate Morris yeah. uh, on, a, on a flight, yeah. which is pretty random. So go through that story and how it influenced you and inspired you to step into entrepreneurship. Yeah, Xavier's a basketball school, but I'm always a Kentucky fan. So like I went to go watch the Cats in Dallas. They were playing Baylor. I might have... I don't recommend it, but I might have skipped a day of class to go do it. Of course. Knowing there was an ice storm about to blow through, but I went anyway and um, got stuck there for an extended period of time. They did still play the game, um, and I think we won. I should know, but I think that we won. And that was a good experience. Anyway, long flight back. Took, I think, 34 hours before I actually got a flight. And it was just to Atlanta, but I was like, I got to get that, get out of, you know, Texas. So ended up on the last seat of the plane next to the bathroom. I had been flying all day. Honestly, it was kind of kind of gross. Um, but I was seated next to him. And I had my UK vest on. And if anybody knows Nate, he likes to talk. And he asked me, you know, do you go to UK? Were you here for the game? And um, not knowing who he was, long story short, um, you know, he's this, the founder and CEO of Rubicon Global uh, waste and recycling technology company with a great smart cities program, mitigate waste, generate more data, awareness, things like that. And uh, I worked for him uh, as his assistant for a while in a variety of other roles at the company. And he basically said, you know, if you're interested in technology and sustainability, we've got both. And so that was my entry point um, out of the family restaurant business, out of grad school, into a new trajectory in which one I've, you know, extremely passionate about and have stuck with since. Yeah. And at what stage was Rubicon Global at that time? They were about to raise a Series B of 30 million. I believe the round right before that was five. So totally different stages. But I think I was employee like 90, which is, you know, still pretty big, but um, they had a lot of, you know, solid customers and things like that. So early... But not like first ten yeah. kind of thing. So I still saw a lot, but yeah, for sure. So okay, let's transition into how that inspired uh, Native and how you came up with the idea for Native. Why you dove into Native, um, and kind of give us the the elevator pitch for what Native is. Okay, so like I said, it came from the the food space and the food supply chain. Um, at Rubicon, we talked about you know mitigating waste, and one of the biggest offenders of you know food or of waste is food waste. Mm-hmm, for sure. So paid a lot of attention to that. I actually after I left Rubicon after about two and a half years went to Toast, which is a cloud based 
point of sale system um, for restaurants. So I was back around food and started thinking about it a lot more um, as I was working in the restaurant space again, just on the tech side. What I quickly got into was going to food tech, ag tech events. And it turns out in 2018, there were 300 of them in New York City where I was living at the time. So any, almost any day of the week, I could go find something. And at a lot of these events, it was, you know, restaurant tech focus, but also agriculture. Naturally started building a lot of relationships, um, started on a consulting project with my now business partner um, on like kind of a food ma- food waste mitigation um, company idea. <clears throat> and we realized, you know, all right, if we're going to accomplish the issue of food waste and talk to farms... What's the primary issue? If I were to call them today, how would I get, you know, inventory information? And that's actually how we uncovered a cloud-based tool gap at the farm level. They're like, oh, we're using Excel spreadsheets. And a family farm would tell me that, and I'm not going to, like, name names, but somebody that raised over $100 million also was using Excel spreadsheets to manage their inventory. And I was like, wow, that that's wild. And so from that idea uncovered a wealth of opportunity within, you know, kind of one of the last industries that has a lot of room for improvement and digitizing and cloud-based tools to give you real-time information for any part of the operation and even downstream in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So uh, certainly at that point in New York City, um, actually one step back, also during my trip to Israel, for my Xavier MBA program. We went there for two weeks. We went to a kibbutz, which if you don't know, is like um, a family farm where, you know, um, it's very community driven. And it was where Netafim, which is a slow drip irrigation system, it sounds super boring, but it's really important because it mitigates the use of water and agriculture runs more efficiently. That was kind of my first spark. So um, I didn't realize at the time how influential, you know, one visit and one trip was, but it actually kind of laid the foundation and planted some, oh, no pun intended, I hate when that happens, <laughs> curiosity into my mind for what I wanted to do. Yeah, what what is what has kept this industry from adopting these cloud tools prior to you? Yeah, there, uh, you have a huge, yeah, you have a huge divide. I mean, you have small family farms, you have emerging farms that have raised a little bit of capital, um, farms of all sizes. And there weren't great tools for the small to mid-sized market. So initially, we looked at that market, extremely overlooked, um, and you just went straight to ERP systems, where your first line item when you're buying one is, you know, servers, which most often they'll tell you they're a hybrid company, a lot of these big ERP providers. SAP, Uh, Oracle. We don't need to name names. There's plenty (laughs) of them. There's industry-specific ones too. But, you know, we're living in a cloud-based world where that drives the most efficient operation. And, you know, that was was certainly uh, an opportunity to uncover. But, you know, smaller family farms should have similar tools or tools at all that should be easy to use and affordable. It's a very low margin industry at the farm level that are at least similar or will help them grow so that they don't have to change and make a massive change to their operation by swapping out one system for the other. You should be able to start as a smaller farm and grow into something remotely similar. And those just didn't even exist. So are you selling to smaller farms, medium-sized farms, enterprise? Where are you? Yeah, kind of- we have we have um, two core products. So the first one and our original inspiration was creating 
some type of farm management software. And originally, like three years ago, we were like, okay, we're just going to build an inventory system specific to uh, farming. There's there's a market for that. And then it became pre-harvest and post-harvest tools. So the time that I even purchased the seed, I planted it in the ground. Uh, it grows. We package it. Okay, so then comes post-harvest. So we package it in this container at this size, at this price, at this time, all those things. Um, so that's been, you know, a successful product. Um for us and 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 really big picture there's a market for that and there's a lot more we're doing as well yeah. um i'm not sure if i answered the question yeah, entirely no, but no, you're, good. <laughs> you're good uh so when we got drinks uh, yeah. you had teased a new product yeah that, that's coming out that i yeah. really really uh, enjoyed hearing about and, and i love the yeah. concept of it so tell us more about that and let's dig into that yeah i mean listen the the reason that we invested time and resources into building cloud-based tools in general is the start of the, the supply chain needs to be connected. It needs to be digitized before you can do a lot more throughout the supply chain. What drives the supply chain? Yeah. All of us in this room, consumers. Um, if we're not buying these products or we don't demand these products are being grown, then there's no point in growing them. And how can we get information back and forth? So that's why we built the first set of tools. What is our larger vision is really to connect agriculture producers and the supply chain to the end consumer and back and create this really great real-time feedback loop. Um, and we laid the foundation by doing that. And so, yeah, we're rolling out. We've already rolled it out, kind of a version one, tested it with some of our existing customer base. Um, and now I'm realizing I didn't entirely answer the question, who's your customer base? Small, small farms, you know, down to family farms, all the way up to enterprise. You know, we've got farms, greenhouses, you know, one of their locations is 15, 20 plus acres under glass, which is which is pretty large across the board. But, you know, why do we do that big picture to collect data, to be efficient at the source, but also to communicate with our end consumer. And that's what our larger vision is at Native, is to create a more interconnected food system to run more efficiently for you and I to know more about the products that are being grown and be able to communicate and create a great feedback loop to those that are growing my food. So before I plant my next batch of seeds, Let's make sure our demand in each of these markets where it's ultimately going, whether it's a grocer or direct-to-consumer D2C, is, you know, what we think it should be, right? So with this transparency emerging where now consumers can see exactly where their food's coming from, yeah. is that going to give rise to direct-to-consumer farms where it's it's grown at the farm and then goes straight to the consumer? I guess that's almost like a, a farmer's market, but I feel like yeah. there's a more efficient way to do it if with, with your software. Yeah. I mean, part of it is demand, right? But part of it is like, okay. Awareness. Take, take, yeah. Take another yeah. step back too. Let's think about the fresh produce industry, which is to date, you know, our largest area we've driven revenue from. How many brands that you buy can you name? Produce brands. Yeah, no, none. Maybe the banana Dole, What's the Driscoll's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, What's even the, for me, it's sometimes the woman with challenging. the bananas on, a, on her head. What's the name of that one? Chiquita. Chiquita. <laughs> Off the top of the Chiquita head, banana. Nice. Okay. So that's, that's challenging for you. And you look at the CPG industry, you know, packaged goods. You look at any other industry. Brand awareness is a yeah, huge thing. People sure. are demanding brands that they know and they have a connection with. And they are demanding a relationship with the farmer or at least a way to like get to know them. Um, and there's, there's a real lack of, um, brand loyalty 
in this space, maybe because you can't buy, find it on a regular basis, or most often you don't even know where it came from. Yeah. That's part of the problem we're solving. And with fresh produce, naturally you have some inconsistency in your product because you grow it and it's a living thing most of the time. Um, how can we communicate what other varieties of lettuce is like? I really like your lettuce brand. All of a sudden I'm looking for brands in the grocery store. That's new. And there's these emerging brands com com competing, coming into the, the industry, trying with everything they have to make a name for themselves and to compete. So how can we help consumers get to know them, but also really quickly and really efficiently through packaging, digital signage in the grocery store, um, tell that brand what I think and why I'm going to buy them or maybe why I'm not going to buy them. But that's also important information for me to know. So tell us a little bit about how you're actually connecting these things. So how does a consumer mm -hmm. uh, actually see where this brand has come from? Yeah. Talk about the actual process that a consumer would go through. Yeah, right now, QR codes. For sure. Um, let's dive into that. You know, yeah, yeah let's dive in. So uh, engagement for QR codes, it's like, it's fascinating because people say, you know, traditionally, what is the engagement level? It's so low. Well, if we look at Japan, you know, the country that, if I'm not mistaken, created it, or at least the comp, you know, the, that owns the um, rights to the term QR code mm -hmm. is based in Japan. The U.S. adoption is much lower, but I don't want to thank COVID for anything. There's, I think, a lot of good things to come from it, but one of them is QR codes are everywhere. That's how we read a menu now in a restaurant. Yep. Um, it, it's helped us, right? Um, so it's a simple way, even if I only got under 5% feedback initially, making an investment um, and digitizing and creating digital landing pages from my packaging, it's a lot more information than I was probably collecting more. And I'm not standing in my Kroger store or my Whole Foods store or my local mom and pop grocer to know what they're actually thinking or even what they're thinking when they go home. That's really important information. You look at a company like Driscoll's, they built something called the Delight Platform. And I think they only had, there's a, there's a really great Harvard Business case study on it. But they built this to be transparent about their supply chain and to start to pinpoint, you know, all this product goes all over the country after we grow it. But we can integrate traceability into it or not. But berries are really delicate. Um, they mold really easily. They get damaged really easily. And so they said, you know, we need to invest in this platform. We have a really loyal customer base. And when we talk to a lot of emerging brands in agriculture or a lot that are losing market share, they're like, wow, we really missed something important here. So even the smallest bit of feedback, good or bad, um, to, to understand people's purchasing decisions goes a long way. So QR codes is the current um, means for doing that and integrating that into packaging by um, you know doing that before the packaging is produced or even just adding a sticker to something like fresh produce. Makes sense. Cool. Wanted to, uh, when we got drinks, we talked about education for a while. Um, I want to talk about that because yeah. I think we have some unique perspectives we can share. Um, you and I are on UK's, uh, the business school's emerging leaders yep. board, and that's been a, a good experience. We talked about that for a bit. Yeah. Um, so talk about, you know, how and why you're getting more involved now with education, particularly with UK, because you said you're actively trying to get more involved and yeah. let's transition that into like education around entrepreneurship. Yeah, absolutely. I don't believe entrepreneurship was yet a major or even a minor at UK. Um, I had already made up my mind pretty early on. I wanted to do management because I felt it was well-rounded. But especially since Dean Simon Sheather has come in, I think he's had a huge focus on 
you know, this is formal education, this is where you can go, but how do we integrate the two? Um, I think there's a, a lot, I just told you, I recent, recently relocated from New York City back to the Midwest for a variety of reasons, but I think you see a lot of, you know, emerging VC funds that focus specifically on the Midwest. Why do you guys do this po- podcast in from, from my understanding, why do you call it middle tech for this reason, right? Um, there's a lot of really bright kids that feel like they have to go to the coasts and things like that. And quite frankly, from being someone that launched a business at a young age in New York City, um, there's a lot of advantages to doing it in the Midwest or starting it there and bringing it back or bringing a big portion of the, you know, the presence back. So it's to recruit talent, which we've also talked about. That's already, you know, there's already been an ROI there. Um, you know, it's important because I'm not saying, you know, I'm that important, but like, if I can have an impact on one or two students to encourage them that, you know, there's no right age to become an entrepreneur. Um, I always encourage, you know, the younger you are to go work as closely as you can. If you want to go work at a startup, work as closely as you can to the CEO or, you know, an executive level person, because you're going to learn 10 X what you're going to learn in an entry level role. And it might pay you $10,000 more right out of school, but what are you going for? And so just to give people my unfiltered opinion, um, when asked or when the school asked me (laughs) to speak, um, (laughs) try to make a difference and encourage entrepreneurship at a younger age. Um, maybe I would have done it sooner. I would not change my path for anything. Um, but I think there's a lot of students that want to hear from people five, you know, two, five, ten years removed from school and not necessarily someone who's close to retirement and sold three companies. That's great. Mm-hmm. But I think you get the best information and honest information from people that, you know, are thinking about it at the university level. Yeah. That's probably that was the biggest reason I got involved in that in that board and and I I go back and I try to talk to as many classes as I can mm-hmm. for many of the reasons you just mentioned is I I love to keep tabs on these students coming out of UK that are that are very talented and I love to give back and give yeah, them too. a perspective on you know I I can relate to them like you said we're younger than a lot of the speakers that come in there so we can relate to them differently mm-hmm. um, but another another reason I try to stay as close to the university as I can is so that you know, my opinions as, you know, an entrepreneur and somebody that actually dropped out of, out of UK can be heard there. You know, I don't want to just drop out and not tell them why and not share why and not give back so that other people don't feel like they, they necessarily need to drop out. Maybe they should, maybe they should, but some don't. Um, I thought that was great. That was immediately, I think, (laughs) I think I saw you, we were on our, um, we were on our call and I messaged him on LinkedIn because he was the only one that was, you know, another entrepreneur. And he told me that. And, um, I know plenty of people that have dropped out of school. My business partner did, I think, halfway through college. And, you know, we're we're in the same place. We co-founded a company together. So it's it's what feels right for you. And sometimes people need or feel like they need, you know, a couple more years of education and confidence to iron out an idea or they don't know where to start. And that's the best path for them. Sometimes it's not. But yeah. I, I was definitely a nerd that stayed in school and that was right for me, but you know, you knew what you were doing and that's gotten you exactly where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there just needs to be, UK is doing a much, much better job around entrepreneurship. You know, you know this, you've talked to the Dean about this and I think they're just really improving. But when I was in school, like you, there was no entrepreneurship. 
really great paths. There was nothing, there was no outlet for me to go and spend a lot of time around other people that wanted to be entrepreneurs. Yeah, I'm thrilled to see that. And I think it'll only continue to get better, especially in an interesting year like this, where retention could be a huge challenge for them. Um, Not just our university, but others. And, um, you know, how can we drive entrepreneurship at the earliest stage possible and, you know, post high school education, encourage people to do that. It's great for the university to have entrepreneurs coming oh, yeah. out of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, giving back is certainly a big part of it. It's just fun. Totally. And There's so, a lot of bright kids there. There are. And you had mentioned that, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out ways to, you know, improve the entrepreneurship scene there. What are some ideas or some thoughts that you have on, on ways colleges, maybe not just UK in general, should yeah. try to foster more people that want to become entrepreneurs? Mm-hmm. Or at least support them. I didn't have any. I didn't feel supported. That was another thing with me when I was at UK. I, right. I had op- openly told a lot of people, like, listen, like entrepreneurship, startups, technology, like that's my thing, and they just couldn't point me anywhere. Yeah. Teachers would kind of talk down to me if I went to an event. Sure. Like, you shouldn't be skipping class to go to this event. I'm like, hmm. well, this I is what I want to do. <laughs> and so it's like, what? Uh, you went to a basketball game, and I. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, it was for basketball. It's different, but I have different. skipped things. Yes. For a greater yeah, purpose yeah. where I saw an ROI. Yeah. So what should colleges try to do better to, to foster, at least make people that want to be entrepreneur, entrepreneurs feel more supported? I think, you know, UK did a great thing recently. We were just talking about Destin Bell before this, who took over E-Club, yep. Entrepreneurship Club at UK. And it served the entire university, not just the business school, because I think a problem is people feel like that has to come from the business school. But it doesn't have to. That should come from the pre-med majors. That should come from, you know, the people studying fashion design. That should come from everywhere. And I think there's a lot you can learn from people in other industries. A lot of my inspiration for what we're doing with Native is, okay, we just talked about brand awareness. Yeah. Well, why do we have it in every other industry and how do they get it right? How do we apply this to, to, to produce? So making sure there's a very intricate cross-cultural um, entrepreneurship environment and it is not only driven through business school because that's not going to be the best way to achieve that type of culture at your university we want to talk about university-wide Gatton's a great school it's probably where the majority of entrepreneurs will come from in the foreseeable future but I hope I'm wrong yeah it shouldn't be that way and you shouldn't feel like you have to get a business minor you know maybe you're the idea person and you go partner with someone that is the business-minded person and you build you know a hundred million dollar business that's amazing. And that's perfectly fine path. Uh, So my perspective is a little bit different because when I got there, they had the entrepreneurship LLP. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got into it immediately and was around people who had the same ideas as me. Actually, Jesse, who we hung out with last night, that's how I met Jesse was through that entrepreneurship LLP. And through that, uh, that's how I met Brian Rainey. That's how I met Randall Stevens for the first time. That's how I met Morgan Franklin. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where I met all these people for the first time. Um, and I think to your point about what, what can the university be doing or what are they doing right now is bringing in people like that yeah. and exposing real entrepreneurs to the students and letting them uh, be inspired by those stories. And I can tell you uh, one very pivotal moment. I was in one of these classes that was, I think it was a communications class centered around entrepreneurship. And Evan, this is where I met Evan. Yeah. He came and spoke to the class. And through this class, uh, you know, I, I was getting a lot of value out of it, but I was like, what, how, what can I do to take this the extra mile for myself? Mm-hmm. And I told myself I'm going to introduce myself to everyone and try to either get coffee or lunch with them. Yeah. Um, Evan came and talked. I really loved what he was talking about with yeah. Fuji and entrepreneurship. Uh, chased Evan down after class, introduced myself, and then 
that relationship has just kind of snowballed. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the reason I'm at my current job now. That's the reason I'm sitting here recording a podcast with him. Um, so I think that's the big part is bringing in people who have actually done it um, and getting that word out about people who are experienced in this and, and people that I can look at. And, be like, you know, I looked at Evan. I was like, that could be me. That's not yeah. someone that's that far removed from what I'm doing right yeah. now. I, I think the most important thing, and it's not to say that experience from someone that's 40 plus years old is invaluable, but it takes a lot of confidence at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old to walk up to someone that's accomplished or even somebody that's raised a million dollars. Like, what do I say? What if they think I'm stupid? You know, they've probably (laughs) been asked this question a million times and, you know, I will be the first to say I was not very secure when I was that age. And I, you know, wasn't sure enough to raise my hand in class sometimes like to think I've come a long way, but the, the closer in age or the closer and like profile of who that person is to them, for sure, the more likely they are to take the first step and I think that's something the university has done a good job of recently is connecting people that are like the students and they can relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, you got to give credit to the university. That's tough to do. Like to find those people who are yeah. in that perfect little zone of, you yeah. know, they haven't like exploded yet, but they're doing really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, props to the professors mostly, I'm sure, that, yeah. that managed to find them. I think them. there's a lot of people involved that have, yeah, that have seen, you know, if we want to be a, a top business school, top university in general you know, here's where we've missed the mark. And it comes from feedback from like, you know, I've been pretty honest with them. Like, Mm -hmm. this is what I loved about the school, but this is where I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm doing well in my career right now, but you know, maybe I, you know, could be doing even better. Yeah. Well, props to UK for, uh, you know, having Evan join at all and having that perspective. I think that's, Oh, I was thrilled. I (laughs) shot him a LinkedIn message right away. And, (laughs) um, so far we've been, we've hit it off quite nicely since. (laughs) I remember when I was applying, uh, and I, I put kind of like, why do you want to join this board? And I'm like, well, you need, I think you need my perspective. Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. everybody else on here, I'm sure is a graduate. Everybody else on here is, uh, you know, working in these industries. I'm, I, I doubt there's going to be a lot of people in the tech space. I mean, how yeah. many people do you think we're in the tech space on this thing? I don't know. But if we're forgetting people, I hope they reach out to yeah. us when they hear this. <laughs> yes. But <laughs> I guess like, I've got a perspective that I'm pretty sure is rather unique, and I'd love to be able to share that, you know, with this board. Yeah, that's kind of what's kind of my take on it. That's a great. A great I'm glad I made it too because it's been a good experience, and yeah. uh, again, it's, it's good to give back. Yeah. Um. So let's let's start to wind this down like we usually do and yeah. talk about Kentucky. First question is contrast the New York City mm-hmm. scene to you know Cincinnati and, and this this scene here in Kentucky. Drastic. I was asked this yesterday. Um. Destin asked me, and we were talking about, you know, what are the differences and, you know, especially for everybody that makes one trip and does like New York City the touristy way. And you can do San Francisco the same, you can do LA, like other tech tech hubs the same and be in and out and not really absorb it in a, like, if I were to work here day-to-day culture. That's a total difference. And I like thought I didn't like New York City until I went on a business trip. And I had friends that worked there, and I got to see it from a totally, like, different perspective. Um, The most motivated people that you'll ever meet, not every single one of them, but largely um, extremely motivated people, but you're starting to see more and more of that. And again, I just shared, as a lot of people and a lot of your listeners probably know, 
and again, why you guys did this is because there's so much talent in this part of the country. We've always felt we had to go there and it's a great experience to do that. I mean, it, it made me really tough and really motivated. It is, you know, it will leave you behind if you go up there and, and, you know, you don't really get after it. There's no reason this part of the country cannot have the same culture. I think we're getting there really quickly. And it's for a variety of factors, um, but it's bigger. And so there are more companies and it's certainly more diverse, which is amazing. Um, what fosters greater diversity within cities, within universities? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of initiatives within both to do that. I think that's extremely important. The majority of, I mean, half of my friends when I moved to New York City were, were from other countries or the total opposite coast or have lived all over the world. And I was like, well, not me. Why? Um, and I think a lot of that starts at the university level with studying abroad. A lot of people can't afford to study abroad, study abroad scholarships. I mean, that's something I would really like to see myself start one day because I, that was my greatest regret from undergrad. You know, I had a, a good job and I had, you know, my head in the books and I didn't want to miss tailgates. Shame on me. Like, you know, I had a good time, but yeah. it takes a lot of layers to create diversity. When you create diversity, it becomes more attractive for people, um, attractive for funding, attractive for starting companies. And we're getting there and these things take time. Um, but a lot of it starts, you know, within universities and making things available mm -hmm to a larger, broader net of people and yeah. keeping it. You can bring it, but you got to keep it and you got to take care of it. And I think Kentucky's doing a really good job right now of that. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast and just kind of in our own conversations, but we feel like the first step towards getting that where we, where we want to go as an ecosystem is just the awareness and the conversation yeah. that we have around oh, it. Totally. So calling it out. And saying, you know, we're doing good, but we still need to be working on the diversity and getting people out. I love, I love your uh, your quote about going and studying abroad. Yeah. So I got to study abroad in Spain, and we went to a co working space mm -hmm. in Spain and got to talk to some entrepreneurs there yeah. on my on my program. And it's just like a totally different style of life there, yeah. and a totally different style of way of doing things. And it's a perspective that not many people get to see, sadly. Um, so I think scholarships and finding ways to get people out there and see those perspectives and see the diversity of the world. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a great thing for an area like this because it's, it's rare, which is not the way it should be. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that first and foremost is huge. Um, like I said, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to afford to go to Israel. You know, a lot of people aren't and, and won't be. What did I say that I saw there? I went to a farm, didn't know till five years later this would be a, an industry that would inspire me and do all these things. Maybe I wouldn't have known. Maybe I wouldn't have had, you know, that, again, here we go with the cliche. The seed planted inside of me <laughs> <laughs> to be excited <laughs> about agriculture and go off and do that. I think it's so critical for people, even if it's not studying internationally, but it's having the opportunity to go intern somewhere for the summer and being able to afford housing. Um, you know, being able to create a culture of travel um, and, and, and curiosity is critical. Mm -hmm. So we can bring that back here, and we certainly have a lot of culture in Kentucky. Um, but I think a lot of people would like to see us get closer to some of the big cities but still be uniquely ourselves.
Yeah, for sure. One thing that you touched on, and we actually talked about last night, um, there is a perspective that I was able to get from living in Los Angeles, and you actually mentioned it attitude-wise in New York. But I think it's deeper than than an attitude. I think it's um, out of necessity that people have to work so hard. So, like, in Los Angeles and the same thing in New yeah. York, if you go to one of these places and you just think you're going to dilly-dally around and, like, just kind of find yourself, like, you're not because it's too expensive. You won't be able to live there or afford exactly. to live there. So you find these people that go to Los Angeles and everybody says that's where you chase your dreams. New York yeah. City is the same yeah. way with finance and some of these other industries. And it's so true because if you go there and you're not chasing your dreams, you're not going as hard as you can, you literally are going to be kicked out of the city because yeah. you're going to be evicted of wherever you're living. Yeah. I mean, I went through that. I like thought long and hard about, you know, if I quit my job to take the leap in this city, I mean, Lord knows I couldn't make it harder for myself, but I did. And it pushed me and it made me really tough. And if I wasn't, you know, as tough as I am today, every single day being an entrepreneur is hard. You're going to have better days. You're going to have harder days. But, like, you have to have such a positive attitude. And there are so many people around you at all times in those cities, whether they're sitting next to you on the subway, whatever you might be doing. Like, you can just see that people are motivated. And you got to fight to stay there because it was not easy. I mean, I relieved a lot of financial pressure recently, you know, moving back to this part of the country, but it was hard and I wouldn't change it for anything, but like, that's something great about spending time as you found in those cities is it's not somewhere I can just go to free my mind for a little bit. Yeah. But you're going to be having, you're going to be having a lot of late nights and a lot of early mornings two or three just to be able to have the privilege to be there. Yeah. And you got to be on every day and be consistent. So, yep. Uh, what are what are some things that you know after seeing that's the texting in this larger cities that UK can improve on, or not UK but Kentucky in, in general? What are some things that need to happen here? You mentioned diversity. Yeah. What are some others? Um, I guess understanding. We were we were talking about this yesterday when I was over in Louisville with a buddy of mine that also co-founded a company. And I didn't know, like, I knew that I maybe wanted to start a company. I knew that, you know, starting a tech company was cool. But, like, I think you hear a lot more about that in undergrad now. Early stage companies are not only talking about Apple or Ford. At least I hope not. But, you know, what does fundraising mean? Like, 101. Because I can want to start a company, but I don't realize how expensive that is. Almost everybody, like, thinks they will have enough capital or be able to start a company until you get in there. Surprise, you probably don't. So, you know, having like venture capitalists, because maybe I thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I actually want to work with entrepreneurs and I want to be a venture capitalist, which is a critical part of the tech ecosystem. So not only getting people that are entrepreneurs, but people that critically support the, uh, the infrastructure of entrepreneurship is super important. Um, I don't feel like I really heard from any venture capitalists or bankers or w- learned what an IPO was, an ultimate, you know, um, milestone a lot of people are working towards. So that's important. And I-, I would just say making it not feel like there's a divide between being in college and being able to come to, you know, a place like Awesome Inc. or anyone else's local co-working space that they're at, you know, like, I can't afford a membership, making sure that there's a connection between 
hubs of entrepreneurship and, you know, putting business students or encouraging them to subscribe to the local, you know, entrepreneurship hub newsletters just to get started. Podcast. Subscribe to and podcasts. definitely podcasts, definitely podcasts, <laughs> particularly middle tech. But um, making sure there's just not um, a divide, like I feel like I have to graduate to go be a part of this community. No, it would be great to have more and more and more college students take up 50% of the room at some of these events. I mean, that's your next generation of talent. Um, that's your next generation of founders, integration partners, whatever yeah. it might be. So um, breaking down the barrier that sometimes feels like I've got to get the diploma or hit the milestone to belong in this room. I think that's BS and we need to make sure that doesn't exist. I think Awesome Inc. actually does a really good job of tearing those down because I, yeah, I was, I think from freshman year, Brian Rainey invited me to the uh, hall of fame thing. And I was just like, this is the coolest thing ever. And it was was just very welcoming. Even though I was young, I was new to Lexington. I didn't know much about even entrepreneurship really. And that just continued on through the events that they put on through the, you know, just the way they conduct business is very welcoming yeah. for anyone who wants to come in. I, I think they're very intentional about it, and yeah. you can tell. I gathered that. Um, I would place a bet and say, unfortunately, most cities aren't like that. No. Yeah, because not. they're not as, you know, a million different things. But most cities aren't like that. And Awesome Inc. does a very good job. But I think every co-working space can continue to make extra steps, especially during this time when you have an unprecedented amount since college became popular or the norm, thinking about taking a gap year and stuff like that. What an opportunity, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, for sure. We always try to end on a forward-looking statement. Uh, we want to do that with ag tech this time. Jonathan Webb has said he wants to make Kentucky the ag tech capital yeah. of the world. Uh, we've had some great uh, ag tech guests on here, and they all believe the same thing, that this is possible. Uh, forward-looking statement, you know, you're now going to be part of this ecosystem as you move some yeah. of your team back and have roots here, uh, what's that going to take and what's it going to look like into the future for Kentucky? Yeah, what's my statement? Okay, well, I'm going to like do a total spoiler alert on a thought piece my business partner Frank and I are, are going to do here shortly. But we can totally promote it through multiple channels. So what you know, we're dealing with technology, we're dealing with consumers and producers, and there's this great disconnect, as I shared. Um, we talk about you know, consumers more and more and more, especially our generation, the ones below us, want transparency. They want to support brands they know and trust. I'm going to make a bold statement and say, you know, 10 years from now, the brands that are not transparent and do, do not actively take steps today to be as transparent as possible and listen to their consumers as often as possible will cease to exist. Um, if they think they know what's best and they don't you know, need to create feedback channels, whether they like the feedback or not, you will cease to exist. And, you know, that parallel comes from, you know, something Nate Morris did really well at Rubicon, make the parallel um, between BlackRock. Um, you know, Larry Fink, the CEO, said, you know, basically companies will cease to exist if they don't have a social purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Consumer businesses will cease to exist if they do not listen to the consumer and give them what they want and do that sustainably and transparently. Very well put. I just actually, the way you said that, uh, I just finished Mark Benioff's book, Trailblazer. I don't know, yeah. if you know about that book. Basically is... Uh, Benioff is brilliant. I, he's he's <laughs> one of the most underrated founders, I think, on the planet because he's so enterprise focused. People don't even think about him. Mm-hmm. But like he's the software like 
guru. Yeah, he's he's amazing. Totally. But his book is is great. Trailblazer. It always it talks about you know like you said, a business has to have that social cause behind it nowadays because that's what consumers want, and they want that transparency, they want that trust to know yeah. that the businesses they work with are for a bigger something bigger. Yeah. So here's my statement: ten years they're gone if they don't adapt. 